Welcome to the Liquid Church Podcast, a place where you can hear the timeless truth of God's Word in a way that's culturally relevant and cutting edge. With each message and series from Pastors Tim and Nathan, we hope you'll discover how God's story relates to your own and that you will leave feeling encouraged. Thanks for joining us and enjoy the message. The year is 1936. The place is Germany. And the Nazi party is on the rise. There's a young politician named Adolf Hitler, and he is consolidating power over the German people. And rumor had it that Hitler himself was about to appear at a shipyard to christen a Nazi warship, preparing Germany for its war and annihilation against the Jewish people. Thousands of Nazi loyalists crowded the dock in excitement. Would, would Hitler actually appear, the, the famous Fuhrer of the German people? And sure enough, as the crowd pressed in, Hitler himself swaggered out onto the deck of the Nazi warship. People in the crowd instantly saluted, Heil Hitler! Sieg Heil! And Hitler saluted them back. You couldn't blame them. They had no choice in those days. If you refused to salute Hitler, it was like signing your own death warrant. So in this photo, you see an ocean of Nazi supporters holding out their arms, saluting the Fuhrer, except for one man. Can you see him? In the sea of humanity stands one man with his arms crossed, refusing to salute. Do you see him in the photo with the circle around it? Does that help? Standing firm, ramrod straight, refusing to honor Hitler. His name was August Landmesser. And in this now famous photo known as the man who refused to salute Hitler, Landmesser stood tall against the tyrant, rejecting Nazi nationalism and defying the Fuhrer publicly. That courageous act of defiance made history, but it cost Landmesser his life. He and his wife were eventually arrested, taken to Nazi concentration camps where his wife perished, as did August in the waning months of World War II. But can you just a minute imagine the courage, the, the spine of steel that it took to stand against genocide and evil? I mean, can I ask, what would you have done? Well, the rest of the crowd cowards like cowards, would you dare stand up and defy a dictator and stand for the courage of your convictions? I want to welcome you to church today. I'm Pastor Tim, and today I want to talk to you about the courage of conviction. This is part two of our series based on the Old Testament book of Esther. And let me warn you, I hope you got a seatbelt. Buckle up, because I got a heck of a story to tell you today. If you remember, the book of Esther is in the Old Testament. It's actually a historical record, but it's an epic story, a true story that took place in ancient Persia in the 4th century BC. That was the, the reigning empire of the ancient world, and it's where God's people, the Jews, were living in exile in Persia. And the story of Queen Esther has it all, guys. Treachery, betrayal, murder, and the attempted genocide of the Jewish people. Now, you guys know we are using a chessboard to symbolize the story because it has a king and a queen at the center, King Xerxes, Queen Esther. But there's another reason. That's because God himself is a grandmaster, moving the pieces of your life and mine around his board. See, God doesn't see one or two moves ahead or even four or five moves ahead like the average chess player. Our God, your Lord, sees 20, 30 steps ahead and his invisible hand is steering the course of human history. So even when you can't see it, he's working, amen? History is his story. And my friends, you have a role to play. Last week, Pastor Kyra introduced you to King Xerxes, 
who was the all-powerful king of Persia, but he was also a playboy who liked to party. (laughs) At one of his famous royal keggers, if you remember, King Xerxes kicked out Queen Vashti when she refused to disrobe and entertain his friends. So Xerxes replaced her with Queen Esther, an obscure Jewish peasant girl who was incredibly beautiful and who against all odds rose from obscurity, become the queen over an empire. Well, today we're going to meet two new players in this plot. The first is Esther's older cousin, a man named Mordecai, who took Esther in after her parents died. Mordecai was a man of integrity. Mordecai was very merciful to Esther. She lost her parents at a very young age, and I want you to think of him as Mordecai the Merciful. He took Esther in as an orphan, raised her in the Jewish faith, cared for her until the day Esther became queen, and he gave her this instruction. If you want to keep the peace in Persia, shh, don't tell anyone we're Jewish. Listen what the Bible says. Esther continued to keep her family background and nationality a secret. Shh, don't tell. She was still following Mordecai's directions, just as she did when she lived in his home. So let me set the scene. About five years have passed since Esther becomes queen, and life is good, man, for her. She's living in the palace, the lap of luxury. Mordecai's in a position of power. Their Jewish roots are tucked away a secret. As far as anybody knows, man, Esther, she's pure Persian. So is Mordecai. Everything's smooth. Until one day, Mordecai overhears a plot to kill the king. Verse 21 says this, during the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Fana and Teresh, you got to watch out for Big Fana, man. (laughs) Two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot, told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. Ouch. <laughs> All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. So you guys get it. We got a little palace intrigue going on here. There's a Lee Harvey Oswald on the loose. He's, he's an assassin trying to kill King Xerxes. But Mordecai overhears the plot, reports it to Queen Esther, and the assassins wind up on the business end of a razor-sharp telephone pole. That's how Xerxes rolled when people betrayed him. He made them human shrimp kebabs. And that's it. No public praise for Mordecai. You might be wondering, well, what happened next? Well, there's a clue in the first verse of chapter 3. It says, sometime later, King Xerxes promoted Haman, son of, I'm going to try my best here, guys, Hamadatha, the Agagite, over all the other nobles, making him the most powerful official in the empire. Enter our second pawn in God's story, hateful Haman. Can you say Haman? Haman. Haman. If you thought Hitler was bad, Haman was worse. Even his name, Haman, sounds like hangman. Haman was a heavy-handed, take-no-prisoners enforcer for the king. He came from the tribe of the Amalekites. These were the ancient enemies of the Jewish people. All through the Old Testament, you will see the Amalekites trying to wipe Israel off the map. Simply put, they hated the Jews. You might be like, well, why the hatred? Now remember, the Bible is not just historical. It is a spiritual document. And Satan hated the Jews because he knew God's plan was to redeem or rescue the world through Jesus, who was Jewish. So all through the Old Testament, Satan is trying to chop down God's family tree before it can bear the fruit of the Messiah, Jesus. 
And so the Amalekites were Satan's instrument of evil. They're trying to annihilate Israel. So watch this. Haman is a descendant of the original anti-Semitic race. He had Hebrew hatred in his blood. So when Haman meets Mordecai here in chapter three, this is a collision. Thousands of years of racial bias, ethnic hatred. Verse two says this, all the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him respect whenever he passed by. For so the king had commanded. But Mordecai, everyone say, but Mordecai. But Mordecai refused to bow down or show him respect. Now, can you imagine this moment? Hateful Haman comes rolling in on his high horse. He's got an entourage of soldiers and everyone bows face to the ground to honor him like a sign of worship, except for one man who stands ramrod straight, Mordecai. But Mordecai refused to bow down or show him respect. Just like August Landmaster refused to salute Hitler. Everyone's like, woo, Hitler. He's like, "Uh uh-uh, this is a Mordecai moment. Mordecai refuses to bow to a bigot. It says, then the palace officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, man, what's wrong with you, bro? What are you doing? Why are you disobeying the king's command? They spoke to him day after day, but still he refused to comply with the order. So they spoke to Haman about this to see if he would tolerate Mordecai's conduct since Mordecai had told them he was a Jew. So day after day, Mordecai's like, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not bowing to Haman. And his friends are like, why, why are you doing this? Until one day, the camouflage comes off. He says, guys, because I'm a Jew. I'm one of God's chosen people. Remember, he and Esther spend their life hiding their heritage. Mordecai said, I'm never going to bow down and worship a sworn enemy of God. So Haman, when he sees him standing, he's like Hitler. He goes ballistic. Verse 5, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down or show him respect, he was filled with what, church? With rage, not just angry, not just a little annoyed, rage. He had learned of Mordecai's nationality, so he decided it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Instead, here's the key, he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire of Xerxes. Can anybody smell the stench of Satan here? Haman's hatred for the Jewish people He says, not enough to make Mordecai miserable. He says, I'm catching a plan to exterminate every last one of these Jews. Every last one of God's people, we're going to chop them down root and branch. Friends, as Max Lucado notes in his book, this is bald-faced racism. And innocent people are marked for death because of the prejudice of one man. The Bible says, then Haman approached King Xerxes and said, There's a certain race of people scattered throughout the provinces of your empire who keep themselves separate from everyone else. Their laws are different. They're culturally different from the other people. They refuse to obey the laws of you, the king. So it's not in the king's interest to let them live. So if it pleases the king, issue a decree that they be destroyed. And watch this. I'll give 10,000 large sacks of silver to the government administrators to be deposited in the royal treasury. How hateful was Haman? How hostile towards God's chosen people, the Jews? He was willing to pay $20 million for the right to exterminate the Jewish people. That's what 10,000 sacks of silver is worth. So I understand Haman's bad to the bone, but here's a problem. King Xerxes, man, he's got the spine of a jellyfish. (laughs) So this, this plan, this satanic strategy of ethnic genocide is put in motion. It says, the king agreed 
confirming his decision by removing his signet ring from his finger, giving it to Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said, the money and people are both yours to do as you see fit. Skip to verse 15. This is so tragic. Let's listen to this verse. At the king's command, the decree went out by swift messengers and it was also proclaimed in the fortress of Susa. Then the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa fell into confusion. You guys, you guys catch what's going on here? Haman and Xerxes announce a genocide. It's going to be a bloodbath for the Jews. And then they casually sit down for clink cocktails. Like how callous do you have to be? How, how hard is your heart? Man, when you see wicked people in this world, just like enforcing their will on the innocent, the innocent gets slaughtered and suffered. I think of Vladimir Putin invading Ukraine. All those innocent people being bombed. Where do you get the courage to stand up to that kind of bald-faced evil? Now listen, I realize you and I may not face genocide or execution for our faith, but we all have critics, right, or accusers. Maybe friends or family members who mock your faith. Or Right now we live in a cancel culture, friends. Let me just tell you something. It is not popular to believe the Bible. Why, why are you believing these fairy tales? You know, it, it's, it, it's not popular to stand up for Jesus Christ. And mark my words, you and I will all face a Mordecai moment. There are Mordecai moments coming your way. Maybe your college professor has a reputation for making fun of Christians. And just a few days before Easter, he goes on a rant class. By the way, he goes, no one in this class really believes Jesus rose from the dead, right? Like, raise your hand if you believe that. What do you do? You, you raise your hand? Would you stay quiet? That's a Mordecai moment. Or maybe you've been on the road for work. You're, you're away from your family for a month and the assignment's good for your career, but it's tough on your marriage. And phone chats with your wife are kind of tense. She's distant, you're lonely. But hey, one of your colleagues is attractive and available. She made that clear at the meeting. And she texts you after dinner. Hey, can I come up to your room? What do you tell her? What do you text back? That is a Mordecai moment. Or maybe you're out with your buddies or your besties on a Friday night. You're just sharing some burgers or beers, whatever. And one of them makes a joke about African-Americans. And you're like, I never thought my friends were racist, but they really all seem to think this insensitive story is funny. Do you laugh with them or do you call them out? That's a Mordecai moment. Mordecai moments reveal your character and where your true allegiance lies. Everyone else bows, goes along with it. But what about you? In the text, Mordecai had some options. He could have said, well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll bow on the outside, but I'm not bowing on the inside of my heart. You know, it's a lot of, you know, cowardly Christians. But instead, Mordecai takes a stand. In this crisis moment, he summons the courage of his convictions. He says, I'm not going along with the crowd. I'm not, ref I'm not going with the culture. And I'm taking a stand like August Landmesser did back in Germany in 1936. Everyone else, Heil Hitler, he crossed his arms and refused to honor a devil. He stood tall in a sea of cowards. Why? At the time this photo was taken, guys, Hitler's anti-Semitism was well known. Everybody knew he hated the Jews and wanted to ethnically cleanse Germany, purify what he called the master race. But what no one knew is that Landmesser had fallen in love with a Jewish woman. And together they had a daughter. Their family actually tried to flee to Denmark, but were detained by the Nazis at the border for dishonoring the race. And the Gestapo told August to stop seeing his wife, but he stood his ground and refused. He said, we're family. Both were arrested, sent to concentration camps. They never saw each other again. 
Friends, that's the high cost of conviction. It's saying, if I perish, I perish. If I'm unpopular, I'm unpopular. You can cancel me, but you can't cancel my convictions. You cannot cancel my faith. Mordecai refused to bow to a bigot. Landmesser refused to salute Satan's strongman. What about you? What will you do when your Mordecai moment comes? Will you compromise your conviction? Or you stand up with courage. Let me encourage you, my friends. Decide right now what you will do then. A crisis is not the time to go hunting for courage. What should I do? Let me tell you something, okay? 20-somethings, being alone in a motel room with your date, that's not the time to make up your mind about sexual morality. I wonder what I should do. What am I feeling? The night before the final exam, it's not the time to decide about honesty. I haven't really studied at all. I wonder if I'm going to be honest then. The time to combat temptation, compromise, is before it strikes. So you decide now what you will do then. And remember who you are, Christian. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. And if you will stand up for God, he will stand up for you. Everyone turn to your neighbor and say, stand up. Louder. Stand up. In fact, you know what? Wherever you are right now, if whether you're in person or online, I want you to stand up. Go ahead. Everyone just stand up for a minute. Take a stand. We live in a world of jellyfish. No one stands on principle. I'm asking you to stand up because there's a Mordecai moment coming your way. And I want you to practice. I'm going to stand up in that moment. Now, go ahead, look around. Just look around. Do you notice something? You're not alone, yeah? There's others standing with you. Listen to me. If you stand up for God, he will stand up for you. Say that with me. Stand up for God and he will stand up for you. In Matthew 10, verse 32, keep standing. You know what Jesus told his disciples? Come on, you're one of them. Let's read this verse out loud together. Put it up on the screen. Jesus promises, he said, stand up for me against world opinion and I'll stand up for you before my Father in heaven. Translation, you stand up for me, I will stand up for you. You plus God always equals a majority. No matter how unpopular it is, no matter what it costs you, our world right now is growing hostile to people of faith. And let me just tell you, I'm just warning you, okay? I don't like it, but no matter how humble you are, how graciously you communicate your convictions in a winsome way, there will come a moment when your faith is under fire. And you will be asked to do something that's wrong in God's eyes, and you'll be tempted to stay seated when others need your help. And I want you to remember this Mordecai moment. Remember Mordecai, who wouldn't bow to Haman. And most of all, remember Queen Esther, who stood up for your people. If you're standing right now, by the way, do this. Give your neighbor a fist bump. Go ahead. Give me a little fist bump and have a seat. I want to, I want to show you what courage in a crisis looks like. Mordecai's no, he's got to do something to try to save his people. So he sends his cousin. He's like, well, you're the queen. <laughs> he, he sends her Esther a copy of the extermination orders. And she says, cuz, you, you got to go talk to your husband, the king. You got to stop this madness. There's just one problem. You guys know it, Persia? No, 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 man. In Persia, don't roll that way. A queen doesn't just like go walking into the throne room like, hey, I got a request. No, 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 no. Esther, if she approached the king uninvited, he can have her head. Chapter four, verse 11 says this. All the king's officials, even the people in the provinces know that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited, whoo, is doomed to die unless the king holds out his golden scepter. And the king hasn't called for me to come to him for 30 days. Esther's like, he could chop off my head if I barge in there. I mean, imagine the excuses she had to stay silent. She could have been like, I haven't seen the king in a month. I mean, he's not even going to remember me. It's against the law. Hello, you remember what he did to Vashti, his last queen? 
Esther had all sorts of reasons not to stand up or speak up for her people. But in this moment, God begins speaking through Mordecai to Esther. And what Mordecai tells Esther, I think, is one of the greatest, most powerful calls to courage in the entire Bible. Verse 13, it says this, Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. He says, don't think for a moment. Just because you're in the palace, you'll escape when all the other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows? Everyone say, who knows? Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this? Mordecai's like, cousin, <laughs> ain't nobody get a free pass. When a madman starts killing people, he has to be opposed. Don't think for a moment because you're in the palace, you'll escape when everyone else gets killed. If you keep quiet, man, deliverance and relief, it's going to come from some other place. And I looked at that this week. I was like, why did, where did Mordecai get the faith for that? Like, where did he get the bold courage to say, I'm telling you, God will deliver his people somehow. And the answer is this. Ever since Mordecai was a little boy, he sat in his mama's knee. And his Jewish mama would tell little Mordecai stories about Moses and how a million Hebrews and Moses were almost wiped off the map one time by a king called Pharaoh. And Pharaoh was on this side and the Red Sea was on the other. And Mordecai remembered. And Mordecai remembered the story of that little kid named David facing off against a satanic giant named Goliath. And, and Mordecai remembered that. And, and he remembered how, how Daniel was throwing this den of lions who are roaring, who are growling. And Mordecai remembered that whenever the God of his ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, spoke the Red Sea opened up, David rose up, and the lions shut up. And Mordecai had the audacity to believe that that God is the same God today. That he answered prayers back then, he will answer them now. Amen? He's the same God. Say, same God. He moved in power then. God moved in power now because he's the same God. He was a savior then. He's a savior now. He's the same God. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, tomorrow, forever. Amen? God's alive and well, and he's undefeated in battle, Esther. And the moment you bow your head to pray is the moment he lifts his hand to help. Amen? That's the message of Mordecai. He's like, relief is coming. And he said, you want to be a part of it? Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. He's like, God puts you in this place for a reason, Esther. He, friends, you were placed here on purpose for a purpose. You were created on purpose for God's purposes. He put you on this planet so you could stand up like Mordecai and speak up like Esther. I don't know what trial or challenge you're facing today, but this is your moment. You were made to stand up like Mordecai and speak up like Esther. Deliverance will come. God will have his victory. The question is not, will he prevail? The question is, will you stand up and speak up or will you stay silent? If Esther stayed silent, she would have missed her chance to save thousands of lives. She would miss the chance to be part of God's plan of salvation and redemptive history. And that's what makes her response here so stirring. Verse 15 says, Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go. Go and gather 
all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then, though it's against the law, I'll go in and see the king. And here's the words, listen to this. And if I perish, I perish. Guys, this is the, the climax of the chess game, you understand? There, there comes a turning point in every game of chess when the pieces are being moved into place and one piece chooses to be sacrificed for another. Mordecai stands up, Esther speaks up, and she says, you know what? Pray for me. Fast for me. I will take a risk. I will go to the king. I will plead for my people. And if I perish, I perish. And with those words, Esther is transformed from beauty queen to the queen of courage. She becomes in this moment the moral leader her people need in a moment of mortal danger. A queen willing to lay down her life to save her people from extinction. Does that inspire you? <laughs> that inspires me. Like reading this this week, don't, don't you wish we had leaders like this today, right? Not many leaders or politicians. I mean, it's the 21st century. Very few have that kind of moral courage. This willingness to say, I'm going to suffer and sacrifice to save my people. I can't think of any politicians in America. I can think of maybe one, Vladimir Zelensky, the president of Ukraine. This guy's incredible, yeah? I believe Zelensky's like a modern-day Esther. He's got an Esther anointing, okay? Ever since Russia invaded Ukraine, guys, that was two months ago. Totally unjust, unprovoked attack on that nation. Vladimir Putin causing suffering, destruction, ruin. But instead of fleeing his country... Vladimir Zelensky said, no, 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 I'm going to stay and I'm going to fight for my people. And if I perish, I perish. It's actually quite interesting. Did you know Zelensky is Jewish? And Ukraine is now facing a genocide at the hands of what I think is a modern day Haman, a war criminal named Vladimir Putin, who is obsessed with power and ego. He doesn't matter who he hurts, how many die. When Russia invaded Ukraine, they expected little resistance. They thought Zelensky will fold. The whole thing will fold like a, like a you know, house of cards. But this is incredible. You guys remember? Instead of being airlifted out, President Zelensky was defiant. He actually turned down the U.S. offer to evacuate him and said, I need ammunition, not a ride. Hello. Man, that is bad A, bro. I was just like, go, Vladimir. He said, if I'm, I'm staying to defend my people, and if I perish, I perish. Zelensky's Jewish. He's risking his life to save his people from genocide. He, what's crazy is he was an actor and a comedian before he became president, and now he's got the spine of Winston Churchill. He's showing and shaming the whole world what courageous leadership looks like. I mean, I thought I knew what courage was until I saw Ukrainians standing up. They're teaching the world what moral courage is. Have you seen the, did you see this photo? Look at this photo. I just, I just was, I stopped in my tracks an 80-year-old Ukrainian woman receiving rifle training to defend her country. That's moral courage. Fathers in the prime of their life saying goodbye to their children at the border so they can stay and defend their home. Mothers carrying their children, millions of refugees flooding into Poland. Friends, they're just like you and me, and they're being slaughtered. You know, yesterday I read about this article 
or I read this article about a young family living in Odessa, Ukraine, which is a suburb, by the way. They got pregnant. You can see she's pregnant, right gave birth right before the war. You can even see her and her husband here. They post on Instagram doing a baby reveal. Look at it. It's just like the suburbs, okay? And she gave birth to a baby girl, and she wrote on Instagram, it's been the best 40 weeks of our life. Our little girl's a month old. Daddy gave her flowers. It's a new level of happy for me. That was the last post on her Instagram. On Saturday, Russia fired rockets into their neighborhood, killing the mom, her three-month-old newborn. It's absolutely heartbreaking. I don't know about you, don't get immune to this, guys. Putin is a monster, barbaric, on the level of Haman, bombing cities. They're, they're executing civilians with hands tied behind their backs. A trail of atrocities. Understand it's not mass murder. It's the genocide of an entire generation. And so when I watch the news, I'm just telling you what goes on in my heart. I feel such outrage for them. I feel such anger for them. I feel grief. And I don't know what to do with that. So two months ago, as I'm watching the news, I just started praying the next morning. I was like, God, I feel powerless. I, I look like Mordecai. I want to help, but how? I literally started praying. I was like, Lord, how do I even pray for these poor suffering people? This is like a David facing down a demonic Goliath like Putin. Well, let me tell you something. <laughs> God gave me an answer. It was in his word. A verse came to me actually from the Psalms. Now, I want to warn you, this verse is a little violent. It's from Psalm 58, verse 6. David prays, break their teeth in their mouths, O Lord. God, tear out the fangs of those lions. You ever come across a verse and you're like, whoa, hello. David didn't have his coffee. What's going on here? This is called an imprecatory psalm. It's a very rare kind of prayer that calls down God's judgment and vengeance on the wicked. You ever come a verse like this and you're like, I'm, I'm more looking for peace, Jesus calling, what's happening? Imprecatory Psalms are made for Mordecai moments. When the violent attack the innocent, imprecatory Psalms express God's outrage about injustice and human suffering. And it's calling on him to do something about it. Break their teeth in their mouths, God. Tear out the fangs of those lions. Now understand, most of the time, as Christians, we are called to pray for peace and for nonviolence. But there are some moments that require us to stand up and to cry out to God for justice that only he can deliver. And so I started praying this prayer for Ukraine every morning. For the last two months, I have prayed, in the name of Jesus Christ, you're the same God. Break the teeth of that Russian prayer, Vladimir Putin. Cut off his claws, God. Protect Zelensky. Save his people. Guys, our God is aroused when he sees the innocent suffering. The Russian people aren't evil, understand? But Vladimir Putin is. And so I'm praying with the psalmist that Putin's evil plans would boomerang back on him and honestly take him out in Jesus' name. I'm just telling you what I'm praying. God's intervention is Ukraine's only hope. With those outsized odds, we got to pray. Pray for God to thwart Putin's plans, for tanks to get stuck in mud, for soldiers to lay down their arms, that Ukraine can be scared and God get the glory. Amen? When her people were threatened, Esther said, pray with me, fast for me. Friends, we got to pray for Ukraine every day. That's how you fight in the spiritual realm, from your knees. Remember, the moment you bow your head to pray is the moment God lifts his hand to help. So church, let's pray like Esther. Take action. How can you help? Well, right now, millions of Ukrainian refugees, you know, that you see in the news, they're pouring into Poland. No food, water, medicine. Well, good news. We've identified partners on the ground in Poland. 
Their name is Convoy of Hope. We've done a few relief missions with them. And we are donating a portion of today's offering to provide food, medicine, and relief supplies for our brothers and sisters in Poland who are fleeing a madman in Ukraine. So if you have a heart to help those who are suffering, give generously to today's offering. We may not be directly affected, but we all have a role to play when others suffer. Amen? As Christians, part of how God made you was to stand up like Mordecai and to speak up like Esther wherever you see injustice. So let me close by making this personal. I don't know what crisis you're facing today. I don't know the specifics of who is counting on your courage. Is your family under attack right now? Are you in a season where a loved one is sick or in trouble or on hospice? Maybe your job's in jeopardy? My prayer is that God would inject you with the courage to stand up like Mordecai and to speak up like Esther and be a voice for the voiceless, for those who are oppressed and suffering. Amen? Let me do this. I'm going to invite our ushers to come forward at every campus to receive today's offering. If you're at church online, we're going to put a link in the chat. And as we prepare to receive the offering today, some of, you, some of you are like, Tim, what happens to Esther when she walks in there? Come back next week to find out, okay? Part three, it's a three-part Netflix series. The dramatic conclusion to our story is on Mother's Day next Sunday, and it's a good one, so don't miss it. But in the meantime, um, in fact, I feel like before we receive the offering, let's one more, stand together, come on. Stand together, put your hands up as we close in prayer. Put them up. Father, our hearts are stirred by the moral courage of Mordecai and Esther. And Father, we know your heart is aroused. Whenever the innocent suffer, wherever there's racism, whenever um, people are threatened, Father God, by the wicked. So we ask, Lord, would you just right now just pour out your mercy on our brothers and sisters in Ukraine? Would you just give, give strength and hope in Christ? to the families, the soldiers, Lord, to President Zelensky, protect them, Lord. Let them know we stand with them in this moment and give an Esther anointing as they resist this evil genocide. Lord, we're people of peace. We don't wish violence on anyone, but we ask for your vengeance on the wicked. Break the teeth of Putin, God. May his wicked plans boomerang back on him. Jesus, we ask for your protection to surround your people. We know that when one part of your church suffers, we all suffer. But Jesus, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You defeated giants. You shut the mouths of lions, part of the Red Sea. Do it again, Lord. Let us see your power and faithfulness and bring peace to our world. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, amen, amen. All right, ushers, you can pass the popcorn buckets to receive today's offering at our live locations. If you're online, we'll put a link in the chat. You can give online at liquidchurch.com or on the mobile app or drop that prepaid envelope in the mail. Like I said, part, a portion of today's offering will be used to actually pay for relief supplies, food and medicine to refugee families from Ukraine. So as you give today, give generously. Let's speak up, let your voice be heard, and stand up for those who need our help. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you want to check out Liquid Church for a weekend service, small group outreach, or clean water trip, you can find out more about us online at liquidchurch.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, go ahead and subscribe or share it with a friend. Thanks again for listening.